0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 199th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today was the 45th vice president of the United States and, many would argue, the duly elected 43rd president of the United States, Al Gore. Gore, who is now 69, is a Tennessean who, like his father before him, served for many years in the U.S. House of Representatives and then in the U.S. Senate. He shot to national prominence after he was asked by Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton to serve as his running mate in the 1992 presidential election and accepted. They ultimately defeated incumbent George H.W. Bush and his running mate, Dan Quayle, and Gore spent the next eight years, most of the 1990s, a time of great peace and prosperity, serving alongside Clinton. Then in 2000, he ran against George W. Bush to succeed Clinton in the Oval Office, Contested ballots in Florida led to numerous recounts and ultimately the intervention of a politicized U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of Bush. It was a turning point in American history and also, of course, in Gore's own life. Over the 17-plus years since, Gore has devoted himself, body and soul, to the cause of raising awareness about the threat of climate change and promoting ways of combating it before it's too late for our planet. His tireless efforts have been at the center of two acclaimed documentaries— 2006's An Inconvenient Truth, which grossed $50 million at the box office and was awarded Oscars for Best Documentary Feature and Best Original Song, and shortly after which Gore was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize. And then 11 years later, 2017's An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival a year ago en route to playing at the AFI Docs, Cannes, and Telluride Film Festivals, among many others as well. For his work on screen and off, Gore was presented with a special tribute at the Gotham Awards back in November, and a month later, the documentary branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced that out of 170 eligible documentary features from 2017, an inconvenient sequel had been chosen for a short list of 15 from which the five eventual Oscar nominees will soon be chosen. I first met Gore when I was 14 years old and he was running for president. I was a bit of a weird kid in that I was extremely fascinated by politics even back then, really dating back to the 1992 presidential debates, which I watched with my parents. And knowing this, and that I was a Democrat, a family friend invited my mom and I to attend a fundraiser for Gore in our home state of Connecticut. I still have a photo of me shaking his hand back then. A few months later, on election night 2000, Another family friend who was heavily involved with Connecticut Democratic politics invited me to join him at the Connecticut Democratic Party's headquarters for a big election night party at which we hoped we would be celebrating a victory by Gore and his running mate, Joe Lieberman. I will never forget what happened in that room after the network news anchors called the election for Gore. Everyone went wild. Lieberman called in and spoke to his fellow Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd and the rest of us via speakerphone. And then some people left. And then the unthinkable happened. One by one, the news anchors began retracting their projections, marking the beginning of a long night and a long month of drama. For nobody could this whole ordeal, and the way it ultimately ended, have been more excruciating than Al Gore. And it was on this topic that Gore and I began our conversation at the Four Seasons in Los Angeles a few days ago. Let's go to it. Mr. Vice President, thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. And I just thought an interesting place maybe to begin would be when the 2000 presidential election came to an end in that bizarre fashion, and you gave that terrific, uh, very gracious speech, what in that moment did you think you would do with the next 17 years of your life? (laughs) Well, first
1: of all, thank you for having me on your podcast, Scott. I chuckled when you ask that question, because honestly, I had no idea what I was going to do. I I knew that in one way or another, I was going to continue my work on trying to solve the climate crisis, but I had no idea how or where or with whom or anything like that. I had a pretty good plan worked out for how (laughs) I was going to spend those next uh, four, maybe eight years, And, and so... You know, it's an interesting challenge in life when you get an unexpected chance to kind of clear the decks and start fresh. And I'm just grateful that I've found uh, another way to serve uh, outside
0: the political system. For anyone who hasn't yet seen An Inconvenient Truth or An Inconvenient Sequel and they're, they're listening to this podcast, can you let them know how you first became aware of climate change as a problem and when?
1: Yeah, it was in the 1960s when I walked into the classroom of a great professor in the senior year of college, and it was outside the uh, field of study I was concentrating in, and you had a little flexibility to go and uh, try some different courses. And um, it was taught by a legendary scientist named Roger Revelle from California and he was the first person to the, to design the experiments measuring CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere. And he had written about it earlier in that decade. He was way, way ahead of his time. And he really opened my mind to this. I respected him so much, and I kept in touch with him. It it really grabbed me. Some seven years later, I went into the Army and worked as a journalist in Seven years after I left that class I was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and first day I was there I asked uh, what's going on with global warming and the answer was basically nothing and I soon got permission from one of my subcommittee chairmen to hold the first uh, hearing in the Congress on global warming. And I invited that uh, great professor to be the lead-off witness, and I naively thought that my colleagues uh, up on the dais there would have the same kind of epiphany that I'd had, and it didn't happen. A 20-minute congressional statement's not the same as a full college course, Mm -hmm. for one thing. Mm -hmm. But that's really the first time I began to think to myself, is there a better way to reproduce for other people the aha a moment that I had listening to him. And because it's, you know, it's the most serious threat that our civilization has ever faced. And I don't want to get started taking you down that road, but it is. And so I began then and there to try to figure out how I could be more effective in giving his message to others.
0: People will remember that an inconvenient truth back in 2006 was more centered around your famous slideshow than the Inconvenient sequel, which is more you out in the world, you know, working to solve this issue. But the slideshow existed long before the the first film in 06. So how did you end up honing your own most effective way of presenting the the case that you were making over the years before an Inconvenient Truth? Well, I used to use fold-up
1: charts. Uh, I would <laughs> try anything I thought might work and I went to slides because some of the material is easier to present in, in pictures and I used Kodak slides on those old carousels you remember I advanced from that to a really fancy setup that had three projectors <laughs> and three Kodak right. carousels and it would go from one to the other and I, I have to tell you I thought that was a cat's meow <laughs> and uh, after I left the VP gig soon thereafter. <laughs> Steve Jobs asked me to join the board of Apple. And uh, he actually helped me translate all this into computer graphics. And he, he, when I joined the board, he assigned a specialist in their programs called Keynote. People know PowerPoint mm-hmm. because it's Microsoft, but Keynote's better. <laughs> I'm biased, I know, <laughs> but it is. And so I had this I had Steve's help, and then this guy was assigned to me. But after about a week, Steve called me and said, Al, I didn't mean for you to have him full-time. He (laughs) works for the company. So with his help, I got somebody in an outside graphics shop to help me learn everything I needed to know, and it's been pretty continuous since then.
0: So what happened, I guess, shortly before 2006 that led to that first film and inconvenient truth coming about and what did you make of it when someone first i guess probably floated to you the idea that this should be a documentary
1: you remember that science fiction movie the day after yeah (laughs) some of the environmental groups decided to try to give that a little boost because even though the science was not you know it was a fictional movie but it it did have an impact And I was at an event showing my slideshow at a church in Manhattan. Lori David was there, and she had really nice things to say about the slideshow. And she said, you've got to make that into a movie. And I thought that was a silly idea, really. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but I did. But one thing led to another, and the next time I was uh, out here in L.A., she invited Jeff Skoll of Participant Media, who was, who had just gotten started maybe a year or two earlier, and Davis Guggenheim, who was at that point in charge of documentaries for them, mm-hmm. and a bunch of others. They came to a presentation of my slideshow in L.A., and they talked to me afterwards and said they would be real interested in making a movie about it. And again, I'm so... Uh, <laughs> ignorant. I'm less so now, I guess, but I I really didn't think it made sense to try to make a movie out of a slideshow. But they proved me wrong, and Davis Guggenheim was a very skillful director, and Bonnie Cohen and John Schenck have taught me the same lesson. They are just awesome. They're so skilled, and they know what they're doing so thoroughly.
0: Did the massive success of An Inconvenient Truth, which to remind folks, grossed, I think, $50 million worldwide, won two Oscars, and spawned a million think pieces and conversations. Did that change the way that you've gone about your work in the years between that film and this second one? Well, it, it
1: caused one big change for me. I had a lot more people who were willing to, to listen and watch, and my audiences got bigger on the whole. Mm-hmm. And so I was very grateful that the movie itself reached so many people and that the coverage of the movie did. And then I took the proceeds that were due to me and put 100% of it into the founding of the Climate Reality Project. Uh, And we trained people, I personally Mm -hmm. trained people, with the help of the Climate Reality Project all over the world to give their own version of this presentation that's keyed to the countries where they live or the professions uh, they're in. That's been a real success also. We're building a huge amount of grassroots support to overcome the the lobbying yeah. from the fossil fuel polluters.
0: Well, another thing, though, that's changed, I guess, in the years between the first and the second Inconvenient Films are the number of people who deny climate change. Why has that exploded in the years since the first film. And what do you think's behind that?
1: Well, in Tennessee, there's an old saying that if you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you can be pretty sure it didn't get there by itself. (laughs) And uh, when you see uniquely in the United States, among all nations in the world, this persistent climate denial, it didn't happen by itself. The Koch brothers, ExxonMobil, a number of other fossil fuel uh, polluters and some of their ideological allies uh, one of whom said they wanted to get government so small they could drown it in a bathtub Mm -hmm. they have put hundreds of millions of dollars into creating this false narrative and actually there's been a lot of research on this and the people who've done the research have proven that what happened is they went and took the playbook from the tobacco companies Mm -hmm. and you remember decades ago when the Scientists and doctors first warned everybody that smoking cigarettes can cause lung cancer and other diseases. They hired actors and dressed them up as doctors and put them on TV to falsely reassure people that the science didn't say what it said and that the doctors weren't saying what uh, they'd already concluded. And they did the same thing for global warming. Now, actually, the percentage of people in the U.S., higher than any other country, but it has been going down. Okay. Not much, but a little bit. It's, a, it's still true that roughly two-thirds of the American people agree with the scientists. They know it's a problem man-made. We've got to do something about it. But, you know, when they ask people to rank it on a list of issues according to what's the most urgent one, it consistently does not reach the top of the list. And, you know, they think the people that have studied this Really say the most powerful reason for that is that the news media has been allergic to covering global warming.
0: Why do you think that is? Well,
1: I think that the line between news and entertainment long since eroded seriously, and I think that uh, ratings uh, matter. What they can contribute to the bottom line of the parent corporation matters. And I think when you have an issue that causes a certain percentage of people to just fly into a rage and turn the channel, I think maybe that's part of it. Mm -hmm. It's complicated, and I think that some journalists uh, would like to dive in, but it's a commitment of resources that the news organizations are not always willing to make. And there may be other reasons as well, but I'm hoping that that will change. Here in L.A., there has been a a truly heroic effort to get some of these messages about the scientific truth of this and the danger we're facing and the opportunities Mm -hmm. we have out before the public, in the entertainment media, in series like Years of Living Dangerously. And there are a lot of people who've been putting their shoulders to the wheel to try to change this.
0: Among the merchants of doubt, which is what I think one of the books and and later documentaries from Participant dealt with, was there were the, certainly we know the Koch brothers and the oil industry and stuff like that, but isn't it true that the Russians have also not been particularly helpful? We're learning more and more in the same way that they were sort of advancing their interests in the most recent presidential election, we've learned. They've also been putting their finger on the scale of the climate change debate, right?
1: Yes, that's true. And of course, they're often called a petrostate. state. Mm-hmm. They have most all of their national revenue coming from the sale of gas mm-hmm. and oil. One of the two or three largest producers in the world on any given day, it can be the largest producer. And that's where their national income comes from. And Putin, of course, is willing to do damn near anything uh, to, to promote Russia's uh, aggressive moves to influence Europe and the rest of the world. So, yes, they've they've played a role. Now, I will say this, that Putin at times has made some helpful statements and speeches on yes. this. Sometimes I think he does that on Tuesday and Wednesday, and the rest <laughs> of the week he goes back
0: to being a denier. Well, it's funny. I read that you first crossed paths with him in the 90s, I assume when you were vice president, and yeah. you did not foresee this position for him at that time, right?
1: I didn't. He was deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. Right. There was a famous law professor, a reformer named Anatoly Sobchak, who was the mayor. And I did a a live town hall meeting in St. Petersburg, telecast all across Russia, 11 time zones. And Putin was his assistant uh, in charge of making sure all the cables were connected (laughs) right and all the setup was right and all of that. It's true that I would not have predicted that he would become president of Russia and such a powerful figure in the world.
0: Well, his alleged associate, the current president, tweeted a week ago something that I want to read back to you. Quote, in the East, it could be the coldest, all caps for coldest, New Year's Eve on record. Perhaps we could use a little bit of that good old global warming that our country, but not other countries, was going to pay trillions of dollars, again in caps, to protect against Bundle up, close quote. Now, I can't believe that I have to ask you to do this, but can you please explain (laughs) to President Trump and to anyone else who may be confused what the distinction is between global warming and climate change?
1: (laughs) Well, they're both the same. But, you know, first of all, while it's been cold in the eastern part of the U.S., it's been unusually hot in the entire rest of the world. So since this is a global phenomenon, you can't take a particular area of a few percentage points of the landmass, But there's another explanation. And by the way, I think one of the most effective pushbacks against President Trump came from uh, one of the stars of Jersey Shore, Vinny. Did you <laughs> right, see yeah, his uh, comeback yeah. at that? I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> and what he said is absolutely true. It affects the wind currents and the ocean currents. And in this case, the scientists have warned us for a long time that The fastest warming area of the world is the Arctic because when the ice melts, then the sun's rays don't bounce off that white surface anymore. They're absorbed, and so it's warming up twice as fast in the Arctic. Now, the reason that's relevant to this is that that has reached a point now where the uh, what we call the jet stream or the storm track, that's sort of the boundary between the polar cell that covers the North Pole and the lower latitudes where most people live. Mm -hmm. And that has allowed this uh, cold Arctic air to spill into the eastern United States. The jet stream has changed in that it used to go kind of uh, horizontal with waves across the northern tier of states. But now it's gotten a lot wavier, and every once in a while it dips way down, and you get snow in Florida. Mm -hmm. And the scientists have been saying a long time that in addition to steady warming over the globe as a whole, there will be some regions where this new element of chaos in the weather patterns will produce strange results like this, you know, the so-called polar vortex. Right
0: coming back to the film side of this whole conversation who had the idea i would guess about a decade after the after an inconvenient truth to revisit this i'm sure there's been people asking you over the years since will you update it will you do other things but how did it actually come to be that that we ended up with an inconvenient sequel
1: well jeff skull and i have become long since real good friends and we've had an ongoing conversation about it for ever since the the first movie finished its run. And lots of people have encouraged him and me to consider making another one. And I was always uh, reluctant to do that. Diane Weirman runs uh, documentaries at Participant Now, and she knows as much about this as anybody on Earth. And she and I, and again, Jeff Skull playing the key role, talked about it for a while. And when it came to the 10th year anniversary of the first movie, we all said, hey, 10 years, that's a good point in time to ask the audience for permission to come back and say, here's what's new. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of big changes. Number one, it's gotten worse, mm-hmm. worse than the scientists predicted, faster than they thought it would get worse. But the other big change is we've got the solutions now. The cost of electricity from solar and wind has come down way faster than anybody expected it to. Now the cost of batteries to store the solar electricity at night and the wind electricity when the wind's not blowing has also come down in cost. And you're seeing all of the, I mean, the coal burning industry is just uh, on its last legs practically. And oil is now in jeopardy as well. And gas, people are upset about all this fracking and whatnot. But the good news is, that we're now in the early stages of a what some are calling the sustainability revolution, efficiency, renewable energy, electric cars. And it's as big as the industrial revolution, but as fast as the digital revolution. And it's sweeping the world. Mm-hmm. So alerting people that the danger is even greater than the scientists had thought back 10 years ago, but simultaneously saying, okay, now we can solve it. Let's get going. That seemed to be a real important thing to to bring before people.
0: This time, not Davis Guggenheim, but Bonnie and, and John followed you for two years, I understand, pretty much. Yeah. I don't know if that was intermittent or if they were really with you for, for almost all of two years, but they got a lot of footage of you out in the world. And this time, you know, whether it's doing climate change work in Greenland or the Philippines, but a big part of what we see is the work that you did to Help broker this landmark Paris Agreement, which was signed in April of 2016. So after that, you guys locked the film, and then comes November 8th, 2016, which I imagine you, like the rest of us, probably didn't fully anticipate. I'll leave that to you to say in a sec. But, I mean, how did that affect what you were doing with the film? Did you now have to re-edit? Did you have to make some changes to account for the fact that, in some ways, the road was going to be harder ahead?
1: Well, I did worry a lot and did anticipate that the election might come out the way it did. And uh, Bonnie and John will tell you that. Mm. But all three of us, along with Richard Burge and Diane Weirman, the two producers, we all knew that we were going to have to wait until to see what the election outcome was and then wait and, and see what the winner was going to do. And there was still a chance that uh, Trump might change his mind. There were a lot of people urging him to, including members of his family. And uh, you. And me. I went to see him, talk with him, continued my dialogue with him after he went into the White House. And I actually thought there was a chance he might stay in the Paris Agreement. But I was very disappointed and worried, uh, actually, that other countries might use his decision as an excuse to pull out themselves. But the very next day, every other country in the world said, no, we're still in. This doesn't have any impact on us. And this state, California, New York, Washington, lots of states said we're still in. Hundreds of cities, thousands of businesses. And now it looks uh, pretty clear that the U.S. is going to meet our obligations under the Paris Agreement regardless of what President Trump does.
0: When you heard that he was appointing one of the most famous climate change denier, Scott Pruitt, as the head of the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, you know, at this point, he's got a daughter who's telling him that this is not helpful, mm-hmm. supposedly. He's got a lot of other no, smart I think people. No, he definitely does. Yeah. And so who who does it satisfy to have Scott Pruitt as the head of the EPA or to pull out of the climate change agreement or to do very destructive things like this? If you could today, I know I think you have ceased communicating with him from what I understand. But if, if he were listening today, what would you want him to hear from you? I'd urge him to resign. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I'm serious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he won't, of course. Right. But that's that's the only
1: advice I would have for him. I don't mean to be Im- impertinent or disrespectful, but it's a dangerous situation for our country now. I think more and more people are realizing that. Of course, his appointment, not only at EPA, but at Interior and the Council on Environmental Quality, and you can go right down the list. He's put climate deniers throughout the government. And your question is why? Well, he gets a lot of support from the carbon polluters. And of course, he made these fantastical promises in coal country that he was going to bring the coal industry back. And of course, we need to take care of the coal miners. The country owes them. And they need opportunities to have other jobs. Uh, their jobs have mainly been lost by automation in the coal industry, and then natural gas uh, really pushed coal out of its traditional markets. But he made uh, political hay out of these uh, promises that just about anybody that knows anything about the energy industry, uh, people that know more than me about the energy industry, have been saying, uh, you know, that that's not going to happen. It's... You know, there was a Saudi Arabian oil minister 40 years ago who famously said the Stone Age didn't end because of a shortage of stones, (laughs) and the fossil fuel age is not going to end because of a shortage of fossil fuels. It's because we've got something better now, and it's not only better, it's cheaper, it's cleaner, and it saves our future. Mm -hmm. But he sold this illusion about bringing coal and fossil fuels back to the top of the heap, and... And uh, I I think that he's still saying the same things, even though most people understand fully well. It's just not true.
0: With our last five minutes, I hope we can do something that we tend to close with on this podcast. It's just the caught rapid fire, the first thought or two that comes to your mind, and then we'll just knock out a bunch, if that's all right. First of all, if your film is nominated for Best Documentary, if again, which was what happened with An Inconvenient Truth, and you end up at the Oscars in a few weeks, few months. Which Hollywood person would you most like to meet at the ceremony?
1: Well, b- Bonnie Cohen and John Schenk. Yeah. Because I'm very biased, but I, I think they have done just a, a spectacular job. I have had the opportunity to get to know some of the people
0: in the Mr. DiCaprio I- industry. Yes. Leo DiCaprio <laughs> is
1: a great pal, and I would look forward to seeing him again. Great. Tommy Lee Jones was my college roommate, and we were just together (laughs) recently.
0: Do you watch the TV show Veep, and what do you think about it?
1: (laughs) Yes, I have watched that a lot, and I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus is absolutely brilliant. You know, when she was putting that show together, before the first season, she and her producer asked for some time with me, and we had a a two-, three-hour lunch, and they asked all kind of questions about what the Veep does in the White House <laughs> and all that, and when it came time for the second season, they called me up again. So I, I have really taken an interest in the show, and I think she's a comedic genius. And of do course. they have it
0: pretty well down with the pros and cons of the job? <laughs>
1: well, I, <laughs> they've translated it brilliantly okay. into comedy.
0: Okay. What do you think when you hear the word lockbox today? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I hear it more than you might yeah. <laughs> imagine.
1: <laughs> mostly from friends joking right. with me. If you know, right. hey, have you got that lockbox? Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> By that, the way, I have to say, yeah. we'd be in better shape yeah, if, no, we'd, totally. if we'd done that. But go ahead. Well, on a,
0: on a very serious note, <laughs> it's one of these impossible questions, like what if somebody had taken out Hitler and whatever. But I mean, do you think that if you had been allowed to serve, because I think a lot of us feel that you got screwed. If there had been that continuity, Mm. including in the intelligence community, do you think 9-11 could have been averted?
1: Well, you know, I don't want to sound partisan on such a national tragedy. I think, to begin with, that most people agree that it was probably the worst uh, strategic mistake in the history of the United States to launch a war invading a country that had nothing to do with 9-11 and giving the American people a a false impression that Iraq was responsible for it when they had nothing to do with it. And we're still bogged down and we left Afghanistan uh, too early to divert troops to invade Iraq and I think that was a a terrible mistake. On the warnings that came prior to 9-11, I don't know how to answer that. I will tell you that the warning on uh, August seventh, two 2001 was very unusual. And during the eight years that I read those briefings uh, every morning, there may have been only two or three times in that whole eight-year period when some warning that dire was included in the uh, daily brief. And on every such occasion, we said, hold on now, stop the music, get the head of the CIA and the head of the FBI, get them joint chiefs of staff, Uh, tell us more about this. Let's see what can be done to prevent this. But I wasn't there, and I don't want to be more specific Mm -hmm. in describing what I think should have happened.
0: Last few here, the recent reckoning about sexual misconduct in America, which started here in Hollywood and has quickly spread everywhere, has caused some people to reconsider the past. And I wonder what you made of the fact when recently a person who may very well run in 2020 from the Democratic Party, Senator Gillenbrand of New York, suggested that she feels now that President Clinton should have resigned. Is she wrong?
1: I think she kind of modified that statement after after she made it. Did she? Oh. Yes.
0: Yeah. One of the things that Special Counsel Mueller is looking at right now is this meeting that took place at Trump Tower with Trump Jr. and this Russian emissary, where they accepted information from the Russians about Hillary Clinton, apparently. When you ran for president in 2000, someone handed your campaign the debate prep plans, I believe, for George W. Bush. What did you guys do with it?
1: Well, they they mailed it. They subsequently found out who did it, but they mailed it to us, and we immediately uh, closed the box back up and called the FBI and did not look at it or use it in any way. And the FBI uh, got to the bottom of uh, who
0: was trying to violate the law with that. It's too bad these guys didn't follow similar advice. Last two, only two presidential candidates in the last 130 years, obviously. This is a stat I'm sure you, you know is familiar. Only two in the last 130 years have won the popular vote, but lost the Electoral College, yourself and now Hillary Rodham Clinton. What should happen to the Electoral College?
1: Well, you know, even after the 2000 election, I continued to support the Electoral College, but I've changed my mind on it. About five or six years ago, I took a good long look at it and said, no, it's just an anachronism. We need to get rid of it. It's not a simple question because our founders created the Electoral College to try to knit the country together and There are other reasons. Um, Some reasons were not good because it was part of the slave-holding debate back in the late 1800s. But in today's time, I think it's an anachronism. And you'll hear people out here in California sometimes say in a presidential election, well, my vote's not going to count because I know how the state is going to go. Similarly, in uh, Mississippi, uh, you'll hear people say, well, he's going to go Republican no matter what. I don't like that. I, I think that if we changed it to give the winner of the popular vote the election victory, then I think it could dramatically increase participation in the election. And we need to do that. Mm-hmm. And plus, I just think it's a strange system uh, now. It just I, it, We need to get rid of the electoral college.
0: Lastly, are there any circumstances under which you would consider running for president again in 2020? I just want to float one scenario which doesn't seem that implausible which is that as bad as things have been with Trump I don't know that there's an obvious democrat who can beat him and if he were to win I know that only in after this next election is when the Paris agreement I think really if we're out we're out like that can still be corrected from what I understand from you right so if it looks like the democrats are not going to be able to beat Trump or whoever the incumbent may be at, in 2020 is there any scenario one percent chance even that you would entertain a return to presidential politics
1: well first of all a lot of people don't realize that the first date on which the u.s could legally withdraw from the paris agreement right. is the day after the 2020 election and if there is a new president then
0: <laughs> uh, son, a new
1: president could just give 30 days notice and we'd be right back in the agreement As for me, I told you previously, uh, I'm grateful to have found other ways to serve. I am a recovering politician. (laughs) And the longer I go without a relapse, the less likely one becomes.
0: Right. Well, hopefully somebody who is worthy of your support then will will step in. But thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, thank
1: you, Scott. Great to talk to you.